But if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 17. That's where we will be. Revelation chapter 17. Hey, hang loose for one second. I think this thing's like really offset here or something. Yeah, there we go. There. Now I got something going on there. Okay. So we are going to be delving into the sixth cycle of these visions. And of course, just as always, if something does happen to the connection, I will reconnect uh, right back and start a new video if need be. Uh, sometimes it happens. and I don't know what the catalyst is for that, but it happens without notice. Uh, without any warning. Um, yes, this is true. Except Dave. Uh, we love Dave to death, don't we? But every now and again at church, you'll hear that ding. <laughs> ah, we love you, Dave. All right. So, Revelation chapter 17 is where we are starting. We are looking at this sixth cycle of visions, of these visions within the book of Revelation. Uh, this particular vision runs through chapter 17 through chapter 19. And again, you're seeing the world system at play. You're seeing the, the saints on the earth. You're seeing then the saints in heaven after the demise of uh, what we're reading here of Babylon. But then you not only see the demise of Babylon, but you also see the demise then of the beast from the sea and the beast of the earth or the false prophet. We don't get to see the uh, great enemy's demise until uh, chapter 20, which is the culmination of all the visions, uh, as we finally get to see uh, Satan himself being judged and then his punishment being delivered by our Lord. So here we have chapter 17. Now, what I'll do is I'll read at least chapter 17. Chapter 18 uh, is some things that we can look at, uh, too, and we'll read most of chapter 19. But chapter 18 is really a description of uh, the fall of Babylon. Uh, chapter 17 uh, gives us a great description of Babylon itself. And again, some of these questions are, you know, what are we reading of? Are we reading of this united uh, world system kind of a thing, uh, which many Christians that are premillennial seem to always flow right to uh, when any talk of having you know, one world currency and, and all of that sort of thing is, uh, is you know, at the forefront. So the thing that we had talked about last time was that um, the world system that is in view here does not have to be anything in line of, of what some of the premillennial folks have said or what the premillennial folks have taught. Um, you look at the world system now, all over the globe, Christians are being persecuted in one way or another, whether uh, in China or in Africa or in some of the Middle Eastern countries. I mean, they're being persecuted uh, greatly. And even here in America, uh, you think of the, uh, the culture in America is... They you know, atheistic, and then, then, of course, you have different world religions and all of that. And yet they are doing the very same thing of slandering the Christians and trying to silence the Christians and all of that sort of thing. So when you look at, you know, the, the whole world system is doing exactly what we're reading here in Revelation of persecuting believers, though they themselves are not united in some world, one world government uh, kind of a thing. So... Um, you know, we're, we're taught that sort of thing, and, you know, and uh, we just don't find that. And again, when we're looking at the book of Revelation, we are reading apocalyptic literature, right? So if other passages of Scripture, within the New Testament especially, describe some type of a world system where the, the world is united in currency and united in government and all of these things that we hear of so often— then it would be different when we looked at the book of Revelation concerning these particular passages. But the fact of the matter is, is that we just don't. We don't find that in other passages of Scripture within the New Testament 
of a one world government with one world currency and all of that sort of thing. So when we approach then the book of Revelation, we have to remember that we're reading apocalyptic literature. So there is a truth behind what is being said here, uh, no doubt. But we have to understand the symbol in light of what we read elsewhere within the scripture. So I'm going to read chapter 17, and then uh, we can go back and then begin to discuss some things about Babylon, uh, the identity of Babylon, uh, the strategy that uh, she has as the mother of all harlots. Um, you know how is she supported, and then. How is her demise to come? So we'll look at some of those things as we're working our way through this sixth cycle of visions. So let me begin by reading chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, A Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman of, and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go, into, and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must reign or remain a little while. The beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. They have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, because he is lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are called the chosen and faithful. And he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now, we have a lot of description here concerning the great harlot. Uh, and not just a, a description of a harlot or a prostitute, but she is the mother of all harlots and prostitutes. It is important to understand, too, that when we're trying to figure out the identity of Babylon, the harlot, the prostitute, it is important to remember that the way that John describes it. You know, John describes her as, of course, the one who's sitting on the Scarlet Beast. But he says uh, on her forehead was a name written, a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. We have to remember that if John intended, if it had somebody or some particular place or whatever in, in view here, that John would have disclosed that rather than saying, you know, it is a mystery. So it's not as important to try to understand the identity as to understand what exactly the harlot is. And to understand it very clearly, one, that the harlot, and perhaps some indeed would uh, entertain this, the harlot is not the church. It is not the same woman that you read of in Revelation 12. It is the actual opposite of the woman that you read in chapter 12, the woman who is identified then being, of course, the church, 
This is the harlot, the prostitute. It is important to recognize, too, that the description of her being a harlot or a prostitute is not a description of her being an adulteress. There is a different word that is being used here. Excuse me. Uh, that is not um, that is not trying to give an indication that she was once uh, committed to Christ or committed to God and then has now committed adultery or something along that line. This particular Greek word uh, that is translated uh, prostitute is porne, where we get the word pornography. It means prostitute. It means harlot. If he had intended for uh, us to understand it as an adulteress, one that perhaps was faithful to the Lord and now is uh, fallen away, then he could have used the word uh, mokalis, which means adulteress. So this is not one that was ever committed to Christ or ever gave the appearance of being committed to Christ or committed to the Lord or any of that. Uh, this is one who is indeed a prostitute who seduces uh, the people of the world in order to uh, to entertain, to seduce them in order to uh, serve uh, the will of Satan, uh, as an example there, to fulfill their own desires. We remember what John says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. These are, these are the worldly characteristics, and this is being symbolized by this great harlot, this mother of all harlots, this prostitute, who is seducing then the people of the world with those very means. It is the world system is the idea here. Um, it is not any particular city. It is not any particular country that is in view here. Uh, this is the world system. <clears throat> now, now listen to some of these descriptions that we're reading here. Now, this woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls and having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of unclean things of her, of her immorality. Um, this woman, again, is... Uh, she, she is confirmed by these particular characteristics to be a prostitute in the way that she's dressed, in the way that she's trying to seduce. Uh, you know, you, you get the idea that a prostitute is involved here or in view rather than just simply being an adulteress. <clears throat> now, you think of how it is that Babylon, the world itself, can entice people. Uh, and, of course, it harkens us back to Babylon within the Old Testament, right? Uh, you think of Babylon and, and Nebuchadnezzar. Right. And uh, of course, Daniel chapter four, verse 30, uh, it talks about how the king became so puffed up with pride that he gazed upon the city of Babylon, one of the great wonders of the world, and said, is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? And of course, when he does this, the, you know, the Lord takes away everything from him and makes him live like a like a beast uh, for seven years. But you can see how it is that the world system itself that is being in view in Revelation is very reminiscent of what we're reading in Daniel of the actual city of Babylon, which is um, very, uh, it is always pointed to as like the, the enemy of the people of God, how it is that it seduced and enticed King Nebuchadnezzar to say what he did. And of course, the Lord punishing him for that. So Babylon is symbolizing the world system. It's symbolizing the world. It's uh, the world as a spiritual, moral entity kind of a thing, uh, the world being personified. And we find that, of course, uh, being used uh, a number of times throughout the scriptures where inanimate things are personified. Uh, you have wisdom being personified, etc., you know, of course, in Proverbs. But you have the world system being personified here as this prostitute, this mother of all prostitutes, uh, who en entice men uh, to be in opposition to God. Uh, we remember looking back at the, the whole idea of Babylon that the first mention of it was in Genesis chapter 10 uh, when we're uh, introduced to Babel. You know, Babel was the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom, as it says in Genesis chapter 10. Uh, they tried to build a tower that would reach up to heaven because they were so puffed up with pride and God confused the language and all of that. So Babylon throughout the scripture 
as you read from Genesis 10 and then, of course, and uh, on through the Old Testament, especially when Babylon becomes a world power, that it represents the world of sinners opposed to God. It was the great enemy of the people of God in the Old Testament. And the fact that it is now being used in the New Testament, especially in this particular book, to describe uh, the world being personified, it is indicating that like Babylon is, has always been with us. It takes different shapes and forms, but it's still the same world system that entices people to be against in opposition to our Lord. Uh, it's a continuing presence in a, in a power in human history. Uh, when you look at all of human history and you see how the world system has always enticed and seduced people uh, to, to all of its, its wickedness and, and all of its sensualities, and how that then in turn make people, of course, opposing to the Lord. And of course, John writing at this particular time, uh, recognizing that the essence of Babylon at this time would be uh, centered within the city of Rome. And that's why you have, of course, this worldly system being personified, sitting on the beast with uh, seven heads, representing the city that sits on seven hills, which is Rome this imperial city. Um, but Babylon is always changing. It is always with us. The world system is always doing what it has done from the very beginning, which is to persecute the saints. It offers to the world a great uh, fulfillment and all of that, but it ends up leaving them uh, desolate and destroyed. Um, one writer says that Babylon then is the world as the center of industry, commerce, culture, and power. This woman stands for everything that tempts, seduces, and draws people away from God. All that stirs the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This mystery woman is the harlot city. Now her strategy, of course we're, we're looking at her identity being the world system, but then looking at her strategy, she she. She has her a clientele that is being uh, described here as to who has partaken in her seduction. The kings of the earth and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Uh, you know, you can, you can see behind the symbol of the things that are being spoken of, even by looking in our own day, of how people are enticed by the worldly systems and the worldly ideas and the worldly philosophies and the sensuality that the world offers and then in turn, uh, being antagonistic against uh, the people of God, uh, being in opposition to God, and then yet they themselves end up being um, unfulfilled, barren, um, angry, self-centered, uh, self-indulgent people. Um, you know, you think of some of the, the things that the woman uses in order to lure uh, the people of the world. You know, she, she has this cup in her hand that is perhaps attractive. The way that she looks is attractive. She has this gold cup in her hand, which is very attractive to uh, the people of the world, seeking the riches and all of the fulfillment that comes. But then what is it that's inside is all kind of abominations. You know, and it's important to look at that the angel... Um, the angel takes John to see this woman who is out in the wilderness. She is in a barren and desolate land. He says, and he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. This is where this woman is. Um, I was trying to think of what it was that one particular writer had said when it come to where this woman is, that she is in this barren, hostile wilderness, uh, as it were. Um, she promises so much pleasure and satisfaction, but in the end, as one writer says, you'll be doomed to live with her in a barren, hostile wilderness, a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. This golden cup that is full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication is being described here. She offers something that looks precious and promising, but it's really abominable. 
uh, and how true that that is. I just think of the things that go on today, and especially the confusion of sexuality that is that is going on today, and it looks attractive to some. And how many people then have had like uh, transgender reassignment surgery and then have regretted that whole thing? And how many people are committing suicide within uh, the LGBT community and all of that? These things are promising, but then it leaves them uh, unfulfilled. It leaves them barren. Uh, and then you see that, of course, in some of those things like that. Now, this woman is not only uh, trying to do what she can in order to lure people uh, out of the world to all of her lusts, as, as John is describing here, because that's the world system. And as we talked about before, that the that John says in First John that the world lies in the bosom of the evil one. He is the one who is using the world system in order to attract those in opposition to God, pretty uh, like on his side kind of a thing. Uh, but you think of the support that the woman has, and this is becoming evident here, that this woman is supported by this scarlet beast having seven heads and ten horns. Now, we read of in Revelation 12, in verse 3, then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his on his head were seven diadems. And of course, that's represented as Satan, and identified as Satan in chapter 12. And it's a red dragon having seven horns and, uh, excuse me, seven heads and ten horns. And then you have this scarlet beast, another red beast, another red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns. So the idea, again, being that this is... Uh, symbolic of Satan himself as the one who is supporting the woman, who is uh, using the woman in order to attract uh, the world uh, to himself. Uh, this, this, this woman, uh, this, this seducing woman, this harlot, this prostitute, uh, this world system that is being described here has behind it the scheming, plotting Satan, uh, who is bent on the destruction of all of God's creation. And so much so that even though he's using the world system in order to attract, ultimately it will be left desolate and destroyed. You have uh, John describing here that... Um, in verse 15, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now, this woman who is the seductress, who is the world system, reigns over the kings of the earth. Why? Because the kings of the earth are indeed following after uh, her characteristics or her philosophy or her ideas, um, her lusts. And then, of course, behind that woman, the prostitute, who is luring them all in, is indeed Satan. Now you have... Uh, her destruction being described in chapter 18. Now, this is this is some important things because you think of all the enemies of God that are being introduced within the book of Revelation. You have Satan, the beast from the sea, the beast of the earth, Babylon, and the people who bear the mark or who take the mark of the beast. They all have their demise described within uh, these pages. And now we're finding that the world system, not just those who are in opposition to Christ himself or in opposition to the people of God, have received their judgment. But now the world system itself is receiving its judgment from God. And then here in just a few minutes, we'll look at the destruction and demise of the beasts from the sea and the beasts of the earth. All of the, the whole idea of the book of Revelation, if you look back at the very beginning, is it's the unveiling of Christ. It's all about the glory of Christ and the majesty of Christ and the victorious Christ who conquers all his enemies. 
And throughout the pages of the book of Revelation, that's what we're finding. It's Christ uh, destroying his enemies, conquering his enemies, rising victorious over all of his enemies. And here, this is no different. You have the world system itself, which is being described as obviously the enemy of God. And its destruction is being described to us, in which then that the people of God rejoice over the destruction and judgment of the world system that was persecuting the people of God, as the woman is now drunk with the blood of the saints and with those who have served Christ on the throughout the world. Her demise is being given in chapter 18. The lament over the world system itself is, is being described. Uh, and then you have this, this great uh, rejoicing uh, that takes place. In chapter 19, we read, After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, for smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne and saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, to the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. There is great rejoicing that goes on in heaven after the destruction and, and judgment of the world system, which in the in, in, implication here is that when Christ returns, that this, this enemy of the people of God will also be judged and uh, be cast down, just as it was for the people who took the mark, just as it will be here in this same chapter for the beasts from the sea and the beasts of the earth. Now, we have read throughout the book of Revelation a number of times when final judgment has occurred. We find the saints in heaven rejoicing before the Lord, and this is no different here in chapter 19. Chapter 17, introducing us to the world system, which harkens back all the way to Genesis chapter 10, but has always been the enemy of God's people throughout the Old Testament and into the new, being the world system, always persecuting the people of God. Now its demise, now the saints are rejoicing and praising God for his judgments. And now we read of the marriage supper of the Lamb. He says in verse 7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now, we've talked about this for, uh, well, actually it's been a few weeks back, but if as a, as a dispensational premillennialist, as they believe that the marriage supper of the lamb occurs after the rapture of the church during this time of the seven year tribulation, in which the beast and the false prophet are you know, reigning and all of that, we have a problem here. Uh, something that is just irreconcilable uh, with what the text is saying and what we have heard previously within the book of Revelation, is that you have the marriage supper of the Lamb happening here, and the description that is given is, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These words, these are true words of God. If the bride has made herself ready, then the implication there is that all of the bride is there. There are there are not any that are missing. Now, uh, for the dispensational female folks, they would say, well, when the rapture of the church happens and the Holy Spirit's taken out of here, and during this seven-year tribulation time, there will be people who will come to faith in Christ, but they will have to give their head and become martyrs and all of that. Well, we've talked about the difficulties with that is, one, no one can be saved apart from the Holy Spirit, so of course he would have to be here regenerating the hearts 
of the people that God has uh, chosen from the foundation of the world to be saved. You cannot be saved apart from that. You cannot just give your life and somehow that atone for your own sins. You have to have the benefits of Christ applied to you by the Holy Spirit who regenerates the heart, gives you faith to believe, whereby you exercise faith in Christ. And we know the rest of that, of course, that the righteousness of Christ is credited to us through faith. We're justified in the sight of God, adopted, sanctified, all of that. But you have the description again. The bride has made herself ready. It's the complete bride. So it cannot be that some of the bride is here. Some are yet to come because the bride has made herself ready. The marriage supper of the Lamb has come. This is all of the bride. So it would have to be that if all of the bride is there, that there are nothing, there's nothing thereafter whereby anybody can be saved because everybody's here. The bride has made herself ready. This is a similar description that we find in Revelation. Um, let's see, Revelation chapter 21. Let's see here. Let's see if I can find it real quick. I should have wrote it down. But of course I did not. So in Revelation 21. Um, Okay, so um, yeah, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And he describes even further in verse 9 of chapter 21. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, Come here and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, having... Yeah, having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. And you have this description. So you have the wife, the bride of the lamb that has made herself ready in chapter 21. And you have a pretty good description of uh, the bride uh, represented as the holy city. And then it makes a perfect cube, meaning that all the bride is there. And the bride is now glorified, which means that the bride has now made herself ready. Uh, the culmination of our salvation is when we are glorified in Christ, when the entire church is glorified in Christ, having received our physical glorified bodies, all of that, which we read elsewhere in the New Testament. Here in chapter 19, you have a similar description that is being given of the bride. The bride has made herself ready. The only way that the bride can make herself ready is if the bride has now received the glory of God on her, which occurs at the very end in the culmination of our salvation when the rapture, I'm going to say that word, could be resurrection, occurs when the dead in Christ rise first. We are changed uh, in the moment, the quickening of an eye, all of that. And now the complete church is glorified in Christ. The complete bride has made herself ready. That's the kind of implication that we're reading here in chapter 19, which means that there is nothing thereafter whereby anybody could be saved, or this is somehow during this tribulation time as that is not described either. But after John sees this of the bride, says, Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now we've been actually talking about angels lately on Sunday mornings. We've been doing a series in angelology, talking about angels, and actually had referenced this not too long ago, that when we're talking about the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord receives worship and speaks as God, which is giving us the indication that it is a pre-incarnate uh, theophany or Christophany, reincarnate Christ. And any time that an actual angel ever received worship, this is the this is what would happen. Uh, we read of this twice in the book of Revelation where the angel says to John, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours. So 
that's just a little footnote uh, to our Sundays, uh, Sunday studies. Now, you have this magnificent, this magnificent description here in Revelation 19 of the coming of our Lord. This has been described already in a number of different passages in the book of Revelation. But this is so glorious and presents a majestic Christ to us that as we are looking at him and all of his majesty and all of his glory of the, the conquering one, the one who is overcome as described earlier in the book of Revelation, uh, that he is, he is the, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that he, that he, is, he is coming in judgment to render vengeance upon all who do not obey the gospel, as the Apostle Paul says to Timothy. Uh, this is a magnificent vision of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory. Let me read it, uh, and you follow along. Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. And there are some things here that are similar to what we read of in the description of Christ back in chapter 1. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed, and the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, this should be very familiar to us in some sense because we are reading of some of these things elsewhere within the book of Revelation. Especially in chapter 1, we're reading of that uh, magnificent description of Christ. Having eyes as a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. He's clothed in white. He has a golden sash and all of that. And again, and I'm going to just, uh, say without any uh, hesitation at all that the rider that we find in chapter 6, who is on the white horse and has a crown, who is going forth conquering and to conquer, is also a representation of Christ himself going forth conquering the nations through the gospel itself. He's described as the one on the white horse there. He's described as the one on the white horse here. And, of course, he is coming as the conquering one even here. Now, <clears throat> the armies which are with Christ here in chapter 19, you'll hear the dispensational pre-mill folks talk about how that the rapture has already occurred, and now this is talking about us, who are now part of the armies of, of heaven coming back with him on white horses and going to vanquish his enemies and all of that. Well, we have difficulties there because never are we described as such. The armies that are described, uh, the armies of the Lord are always the angelic host. Uh, you think of uh, Elisha. Uh, we read this too um, uh, throughout our series on um, uh, angelology. That when Elisha's uh, servant had woken up and he sees the great army before them and he, he's you know, you're talking to Elijah, he's, he's scared and he's frightened. And Elijah prays to the Lord and he says, Lord, open his eyes and let him see. Because he tells his servant, look, they that are with us are more than those that are there. And he looks and he's able to see all these chariots and horses of fire uh, that are surrounding the mountainside. Uh, that these are the angelic host. Now, if you read of Paul's description of the coming of Christ in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, you have a similar description. We'll jump in verse 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, 
when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. When you read of Jesus's uh, uh, description of him returning in Matthew 24, it, it's him sending forth his angels uh, to gather the wicked, or in the kingdom parables, I'm sorry, in the kingdom parables, he's sending forth his angels to gather the wicked from among the righteous and all of that. So when Christ is returning, the ones that are with him, the armies that are with him, are the same armies that were uh, described in the Old Testament, uh, which are the angelic hosts, who are coming back with the Lord. This is not a text that is describing believers coming back with Christ. We're not described that way. It is described when the Lord does come back that the believers that have died uh, beforehand in Christ are going to be uh, raised first, reunited with their body in the, to a physical glorified body, then the ones who are alive and remain will be changed to be like them. There is no coming back uh, with the Lord in this great army. You know, in the Old Testament, the Lord is called the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord of the armies, and the armies uh, are always in reference to the angelic host. So those that are returning with Christ are returning with him at his second coming, which was only one coming of Christ apart from his first coming. There is no rapture, play, another coming. It is his first coming, which is already fulfilled all the time of history in between, and then him coming one last time. And this is a description of him coming back in that second coming, as was described in chapter 6 and chapter 11 and chapter 14 in chapter 16, and now again in chapter 19. We'll read it again in chapter 20. Now, at his coming, it, is, it says this in verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for, your, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Let me stop there for just a moment. When have we read of an army before? Well, we read of an army already back in uh, the trumpet judgments. And when the trumpet judgments occur... That you have this great army that is uh, that is brought about, and we read of it in the bold judgments, when and like uh, you have the sixth trumpet where a great army comes about. You have in chapter sixteen at the sixth bowl uh, the same idea, of course, with the great river Euphrates. You have another army that is gathered up. And it says, uh, verse 13 of chapter 16, <clears throat> and I saw, let me read of Satan's judgment. You have another description of this very same thing that we read of in the sixth trumpet, the sixth bowl, here in chapter 19, and again in chapter 20, of a great army being brought together in order to make war with the Lord. So either there's going to be that many battles and that many wars, or, again, all of these visions are parallel it's saying this very same thing. It's just growing with greater intensity until you get to the climax of the book of Revelation, which is uh, Satan's judgment, which we will get to next week. You also have um, here described uh, very similar language to what you read of in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 about Gog and Magog. You look at those two chapters, and then you read chapter 19 here, and you have descriptions from that very thing. And then you read chapter 20, and you have descriptions from that again about that particular battle and war or whatever. So either there's going to be that many battles again, or it's all the same battle. It's just different visions uh, throughout the book of Revelation that are saying the same thing. The very same thing we've been talking about since we started this study. But here we get to read of the judgment of the beast. The beast from the sea and the beast of the earth, the false prophet. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns 
with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is the final judgment of these two enemies of God, the beast and the false prophet uh, that have uh, been aligned with Satan. You have this unholy trinity. Uh, it's okay to say that. I know it may sound you know, kind of pre-mill, but it's a good description, right? This unholy trinity that has been in opposition to the holy trinity. You have this uh, unholy trinity that is now uh, trying to lure the people of the world by this great prostitute, which is in opposition to the woman who is chased into the wilderness, who is part of the people of God, the church. You have uh, Babylon, this this unholy city, which is contrasted with that of the New Jerusalem, the holy city of God. All of these are the enemies of God's people. And we read then of their final judgment. When the Lord returns that uh, these two enemies of God are then judged and uh, given their sentence in the lake of fire. And that closes this particular vision. Chapter 20, we'll start over again. And we will read then uh, of the seventh cycle of the visions in the book of Revelation, where we find the climax of the book where Satan himself is... Um, judged the final enemy of the people of God. And we find similar descriptions in this chapter, chapter 20, of what we read in numerous places throughout the rest of the book. So, well, again, when we look at the book of Revelation as a series of visions, cyclical, these things make a lot of sense. And we have a lot more description that is being given with each vision uh, that John is having of the suffering of the people of God and the persecution of the people of God and yet the rejoicing that goes on by the people of God in heaven as they are ruling and reigning with Christ during this intermediate time between his first and second coming. And we will read of that again in chapter 20. Here's something to think about if you hold to a pre-mill um, position because here would end the seven-year tribulation if you if you believe that. This will be the end of the seven-year tribulation when Christ returns in his second coming. Then begins the thousand-year millennium, if you believe that sort of thing. I do not. But if you did believe that uh, the thousand-year start uh, right after this, and Christ is now going to be on the earth uh, with his earthly kingdom, here's the question. Who then is going into the millennium? Uh, because you have in chapter 20 where Satan goes to the four corners of the earth and he gathers from all the nations a great army to come back against the Lord. But you have Jesus here in chapter 19 who has destroyed everybody. There's nobody left. So you have the beast and the false prophet. They were uh, seized and they were thrown into the lake of fire which burns with fire and brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. That's pretty much encompassing everybody, isn't it? So, if that is so, who is going into this supposed millennium? Who survives? Um, not even Israel, because people will say, well, the Jews get to go into the millennium because that's when the Lord is going to fulfill his promises to them. But we're not told of anything like that anywhere in the book of Revelation that we've read so far. Uh, we hear of uh, this, this vanquishing of Christ's enemies where they call for the birds to assemble for the great supper of God. Eat all the flesh of the kings and the commanders and the mighty men and the horses and all that those that sat on them both free and, and bond slaves and small and great. Uh, who gets to enter into the millennium? I don't think anybody does. Because I don't think that the millennium is being described in the way that the pre-mills 
uh, actually hold to that view. What you read in chapter 19 is the final judgment of God when Christ returns. That's it. There is no more. The only thing that is after that, uh, after the return of Christ, after he vanquishes all of his enemies, is the new heavens and the new earth in which the saints will be able to inherit. Because it's only in the new heavens and the new earth, and you can go back and read this, where the throne of God and of Christ is ever described being within the midst of the people. It is not described like that in Revelation 20, even during the supposed thousand years, uh, which people would say is a thousand years that is on the earth, which, if you read the description here, when John, see, when John says, and I saw thrones and those that sat on them, that's used over 40 different times in the book of Revelation, all referring to a heavenly scene. So what you're reading in Revelation 20 is a heavenly scene of those who are ruling and reigning with Christ during this present age, the church age, the kingdom age. The throne of Christ is not described being on the earth in the midst of the people in Revelation 20. That only happens in the new heavens and the new earth, which is thereafter. So those are some things to think of. And because now we're getting to the point of uh, the millennium. And this is the point where all of these different views get their name. Premillennialism, amillennialism post-millennialism and how you view the millennium uh, determines what category that you're put in. <clears throat> so these are things to keep in mind and to study up on for next time, but those are questions that you need to answer if you are a pre-mill. Who gets to inherit into the supposed millennium? Because everybody's dead by the end of chapter 19. And why is it that it is described as Christ? setting up his kingdom on the earth for a thousand years when that is never described in Revelation 20 either. Those are some things to think about. And we will finish up this whole study uh, that we've been doing for several, several weeks, uh, which I have greatly enjoyed. I hope that you have too. We will finish this up next Wednesday, Lord willing. Uh, but in the meantime, go back and read these and then compare the scriptures of where we have read of them thus far also. Um, thank you all for your attention. And um, again, I do hope that it's been enjoyable for you as well. And look at that description in chapter 19 of Christ and him returning uh, the way that he does. Uh, because he, he has a robe that is dipped in blood and he treads the wine press of the fierce wrath of God. Well, we read of that in chapter 14. Um, of Christ or the angel casting the unbelieving into the winepress of the wrath of God. Uh, Isaiah talks about how the robe of Christ is sprinkled with the blood of his enemies as he tramples upon them. Uh, this is all talking about his second coming and final judgment. It's not talking about this event happens, then this event happens, then this event happens, then this event happens. It's all one event that is being described throughout the entire book. Pretty amazing stuff. But thank you all for your attention and join us back on Sunday at our church uh, at 11 o'clock uh, for worship. Uh, that has been so wonderful being able to be back with everyone. Um, so join us back this coming Sunday uh, where we will once again uh, rejoice and worship our Lord together. Have a great week and I love you all and miss you and we will see you on Sunday.